Hello, so I'm Toby. Um, I'm uh, I'm one of the founders of Contorian. Um, I studied business at uh, WHU. After finishing my masters there, I co-founded CityDeal as part of Rocket uh, back in early 2010. Um, that got acquired by Groupon, um, and yeah, I was with with CityDeal Groupon for five years in total, uh, and then started Contorian. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. In this episode, we introduce Toby Chich, founder and managing director of Contorion a B2B online marketplace for industrial and trade supplies. We're talking about Toby's fascinating startup journey from Vehau to Rocket Internet to founder of a company acquired for over 100 million euros. So for you listeners out there who are interested in an exceptional founder's journey to incredible success, give this episode a listen. Hope you enjoy it. Coming to you from WHU on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Toby Church, thank you so much for uh, having me in your offices in Berlin. Um, it's, uh, it's great to be here. As we talked about offline, I was here last year when I was coming to visit Vehu and was incredibly impressed by what you have built. So I'm really looking forward to having this conversation. Uh, cool. Well, one of the things that I like to do with all of our guests, um, since we are uh, a founder podcast, is to understand a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey. So maybe you could start by kind of sharing your story of where you come from and kind of how you got to where you are today. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I uh, I studied business at, at WHU. Um, started with a bachelor degree. It was the first bachelor after after diploma. Um, kind of. Uh um, uh, got got stopped, and um, after my bachelor, I decided to do a master's degree. Um, after that, and um, yeah, while I was studying, I think I was kind of on track to actually go into consulting because that still was in fashion back then. Um, I guess it's still in fashion right now. So sorry <laughs> if that comes across wrong. But um, and then in my my last internship, um, the summer internship, two thousand nine, I actually did that um, at Rocket as a as a kind of like entrepreneur in residence, as it was called internship and did that in a, in a business there, uh, eCareer was called, um, and I was just very overwhelmed in a positive way by kind of the uh, way of working, by how much responsibility I got even just during an internship, but it, was, it wasn't particular to me, but also all the other people working there, and um, yeah, I could really see a big difference in the kind of work environments that I had experienced before while doing internships in, uh, in consultancies or also corporates, and um, so that kind of um, got me thinking, and uh, and uh, while then I was finishing my last semester, 
um, the guy who basically ran eCareer at the time, um, uh, where, where I was interning, he gave me a call um, and was saying, hey, um, you know, um, eCareer is uh, turning out uh, to, to not work out in the end, uh, but uh, we're onto, onto a big idea here with, with Oli, um, so the summers, um, we're looking at, at, uh, at an idea in the couponing space. Uh, back then, um, Groupon was already running for, for a little bit in the US, so he showed me the US website and he's like, You know, we worked well together back in uh, back at eCareer, um, although he had already had pre previous work experience and uh, and I hadn't. And he was like, do you want to start this with me? Um, and uh, I was like, okay, yeah, well, um, let me think about that. Um, I was doing my, my semester in Hong Kong at the time, as so I wasn't even even at home. Yeah, And then I, I thought about it, do I, where do I actually start my career? And I, I decided to, to go for kind of like listen to my heart in terms of what work environment I really, you know, appreciated um, during those uh, times of internships and um, and I decided to go for it. And uh, yeah, that's where that's where it started. Um, started in, in London, um, started so City Deal UK. Um, City Deal was a bit of a uh, kind of special setup in terms of the founding process because it was a time where Rocket was really actively launching companies and actively launching companies in multiple countries at the same time. That's not how it's done anymore, but uh, that's how it was back then uh, in early early 2010. So um, I was there with uh, with my co-founder in the UK and there was a team in, in, in Germany, there was a team in France and a team in, in, in Southern Europe for Italy, Spain. Um, and yeah, so we were launching these uh, these um, country operations, um, and quite quickly after like half a year, got approached by Groupon, the um, U.S. Uh, original uh, that was also growing really fast at the time. Um, um, because they were looking at a market entry in Europe and were seeing that we were already present in all the big markets, also leading um, in all the big markets. There were other players too. And uh, yeah, so there um, um, these talks developed and in the end we, we got acquired and joined forces. I mean, Groupon was still a startup um, in itself. So um, we got acquired, but that was just, that just meant we, we now owned kind of like uh, Groupon shares, but less <laughs> in terms of fraction um, and, and not City Deal anymore. And we just did this together. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, uh, we then built Groupon internationally. Um, Groupon uh, went public in November 2011. 11 um, on the Nasdaq um, went public quite early in the history of the company so um, that meant we had to deal with all sorts of issues after going public uh, so we were not we we're not um, profitable at the time that's fine if you grow by more than 20% annually so either growth or, or dividend stock We actually went into getting our first growth pains at the time because, you know, November 2011, Groupon was founded in 2008. So um, Groupon was three years old, City Deal two years, so really young. Um, of course, that, that, that can happen, but we were also not profitable. So we were like neither. We we're not a growth stock, not a dividend stock. And uh, yeah, so that we're, there we got under a lot of pressure, um, had to standardize our processes and our reporting because every country kind of like grew individually. So that's also when I switched from being responsible for like a country or, or a region that was then Northern, Northern Europe at the time to actually um, aligning processes for all our um, customer service and operations departments um, in all the countries outside the US. Um, so I did that for a while, uh, for over a year. Um, I was then responsible as a COO for, for EMEA, so Europe, Middle East, Eastern Africa for the last year. Um, a task there was to get it back to growth and back to profitability. So, you know, you can tell it's already a bit more trouble times. Um, and um, yeah, and, and getting back to profitability obviously also means you need to automate things. 
means you also kind of you know potentially have to let go people because you're able to automate things obviously that's that in itself is not as much fun as building something right so that that's that's one thing that then kind of triggered me thinking okay is this still the right thing to do and but b and almost more importantly it also changed the um the mindset and the atmosphere in the leadership team so you know the organization that is used to growing and success is not growing anymore maybe even shrinking so people are like sticking out their elbows and wrestling for responsibility and it gets more important who puts the name underneath a project than if the project is successful and I, that, that was the point where i was like yeah, that's really why i decided to do startup in the beginning to like not do this kind of stuff um and that's when i decided to to move on um yeah um and um yeah i decided to move on had a quite a long notice period so i had quite a bit of time to figure out what to do next um, started talking to different um, people there, knew actually also from university, um, also people from from Project A that then later was our first investor at at Contorion, um, and um, because I knew the guys and yeah, so they were looking at markets and we started kind of looking at at certain markets together. They were looking at and one of them was the market for back then just. Uh, tools for either DIY or B2B customers. It wasn't really clear where we would take this uh, when we started looking at the market. And yeah, and then the longer we looked at it together, um, the more kind of um, got, I got intriguing to start something there because it's a big market. Um, not much was happening online. Um, we then decided to go more for the B2B side of things um, together with my co-founders uh, because that's um, yeah that's where where there's a lot more in terms of like basket size repurchasing and stuff so it's, it was the more interesting part of the market um, yeah and that's kind of how we started Contorion uh, more from the analyzing the market etc side not from the you know romantic uh, my parents are craftsmen and they couldn't find stuff to, that they needed. Um, and yeah, that's what I've been doing for the last kind of now five and a half years. So did you even have a break? Did you go straight from one startup short, turn corporate to another one? Sh short break of, uh, I think it was two and two and a half months. Um, the, the, the later part of these two and a half months, I was already working on Contorian a little bit, but um, yeah, two and a half months during the time actually my first son was born. So I actually had the time off just before and just after um, his, his birth. So. Wow, that's a that's an ambitious time to form a new company, huh? <laughs> In hindsight, yes, it was uh, it was a lot going on. Yeah. Can 
you share a little bit about how you kind of discovered, since you didn't come from a, a hunt worker family, actually, and maybe take it a step back for people that aren't familiar with Contorion, mm-hmm. talk a little bit about your business model and kind of how you got to that business model from identifying different market opportunities? Yeah, so um, the Contorion, we're selling um, industrial, we're selling uh, tools and, and, and uh, consumables to industrial companies and craftsmen. Um, and also to uh, DIY B2C customers, but more on the higher quality end. So uh, typically you can compare our assortment to a DIY store, but more the, you get like where the DIY store stops in terms of the quality on the upper end, that's where we kind of start. So we have a little bit of overlap, but mostly we sell um, higher quality um, uh, stuff. So, um, and the main target groups are craftsmen, industrial companies. Uh, we started out actually as a marketplace. Now we are an e-commerce company, so we actually also business model-wise take the um, uh, things on stock um, and uh, deliver them from our warehouse mostly. We also have um, some wholesalers and some manufacturers that drop ship to our customers, but but mostly we're kind of uh, yeah, more in the e-commerce space than the marketplace space. Um, and yeah, how how we discovered or how I discovered the space? Like I said, it was we we did this together with um, um, with Project A, um, and it was more. Or like looking at kind of back then. Um, so first of all, back then, the in terms of e-commerce and also or online marketplaces, um, we thought the the big the B two C wave of of at least big markets was kind of already you know uh, past. So you know obviously Amazon was there, uh, Zalando was there, but also if you take consumer electronics as another big market or travel um, leisure um, as big markets in the B two C space, there was already tons of business models out there. Um, but um, I think it was already at the time that, that it was getting more clear that in the B2B area, there are markets that are potentially a little bit more complicated in terms of serving them, but um, they are the bigger markets, even in terms of market size. And so, um, yeah, the, the, we, we started looking at the different B2B segments and craftsmen and uh, industrial companies with a need for similar products and craftsmen was one of the industry, industries that we discovered. Also, because not only it's a big industry, but there are um, existing players that for Germans are quite obvious, like Wirt. Wirt is a company that is quite present. Um, also a kind of, I think, still founder or second generation founder-led uh, family business um, running crazy high margins on, on and 10 billion revenue. So really solid business in terms of size, but also um, in, in, in terms of margin and everything. Um, but with the at least in today's world, kind of like a little bit of flawed business model or a business model that is at least very, very difficult to take online. So you have a market that's big and you have a market where the biggest players, I mean, it's fragmented, but the biggest players kind of really have difficulty going online uh, because they, they rely on price in transparency to begin with. And, and so, yeah, it's a big market. Existing players, are not, you know, traditional players, incumbents can't really go online. Um, and then you kind of, we started looking for what, what could be other reasons why, why this is not the right market or not the right timing. So we started looking at it. Okay, it's nice. It's a big market. It's nice that the, the market is fragmented, but our customers online. So we created... Um, uh, keyword uh, uh, pools on, on on Google uh, without actually you know set putting them live and and you can but the, you can already kind of assess what the what the search volume is so we looked at our customers online so and the search volume was there 
Um, and then uh, we really started with customer interviews. So we, we, we started calling, randomly started calling people. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of craftsmen out there um, that you can talk to. Uh, where, do they, where, where do you buy? Kind of just understand um, how, they, how they kind of solve the problem of, of getting their products um, that you are also trying to tackle um, uh, to understand whether there's really uh, an issue and or what the issue is and, and then how you also approach it. Because if you obviously just come to the market and you're not solving a problem, then you're probably not going to sell much. So um, yeah, try to understand the customer and the customer problems and uh, then derived our, our business model kind of from, uh, from there. And what, what pain points did you focus your attention on? Was it speed? Was it cost? Was it you know, simplicity of ordering online? Where did you find, what pain points did those craftspeople and DIY folks struggle with the most that you yeah. targeted? Well, so simplicity to order online is definitely was, was not given at all. I think it was not the biggest pain point for craftsmen that they would, they would point out themselves. Um, uh, but uh, the, so bigger ones were A, they were sourcing their stuff from multiple different uh, suppliers so yeah not just ease of ordering online but just generally ease of ordering um, because there was not one place where they could get everything um, so you know um, they had to travel to different kind of stores specialty stores to source other stuff it's time consuming um, the uh, the second one and also quite a big one is um, price in transparency and also knowing that you're kind of paying too much but you can't do anything about it because prices are intransparent um, that actually led to quite quite big frustration so um, uh, I think it's it's probably more on the emotional side um, well obviously it's also factual if you're just paying too much and you know you have a PL then obviously but but I think that's not even the main it wasn't the main like uh, reason why 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 craftsmen kind of got got upset with it was the, was that but more that they felt like hey um, I'm not being treated right you know that I'm, I'm being charged too much and the other side kind of knows it but I can't do anything about it so um, you have to imagine that um, our competitors at the time they have list prices um, but the list prices are kind of they are prices nobody ever pays they're really really far away from the prices uh, people pay in the end and so you depending on, on on who you are and how well you negotiate as craftsmen you get discounts uh, from like 40% to 60 in some categories even 80% discount so the list price really doesn't mean anything so customer customers had no kind of like good feeling for for what what like is a reasonable price that they should be paying and uh, and so they also knew that sometimes the guy next door um, who's in a similar like you know business he negotiated himself a much better price than they did and so they felt kind of like mistreated it's an interesting conundrum because there's so many businesses that, you know, make a living off price and transparency. And I was telling you offline that I had a business in the loyalty marketing and the, the entire industry is based on nobody knows the value of the currency, right? Yeah. So you're solving a problem of transparency for your, your purchasers, but how do you rectify, I imagine those businesses don't necessarily want that level of transparency. Was that a... Did you yeah. come into a point of conflict there that you had to yes. find a solution for? Well, yes, um, like so, the businesses that were buying from us, they want that transparency. It's just the the competitors in the market, obviously, they don't want that. Mm -hmm. So, um, so a yes, I think our competitors never liked us <laughs> when we when we started doing this. Um, the good thing about the dominant competitors was that they were selling 100% own brands. So they're like uh, a it was never in question that we they would give us their own brand because yes. 
they don't want price transparency, um, and and uh, so they wouldn't give us. We didn't think we would we would get it, so that was out of the question. Um, but then there were a brands that were already selling through a network of dealers, um, wholesalers, mostly regional, but also there. Um, not much was happening online, and so prices were still intransparent. Prices were still high. So even for us in the beginning, it was difficult to get even supply. So to get um, uh, manufacturers to work with us, um, because we were approaching them as you know, as us, as we are the online player, and they were like, no, no, no. And like uh, between the lines, they told us that um, it's not really that we don't want, but if we do this. All of our supply network of suppliers is basically, or or like resellers, is basically going to uh, revolt. Mm -hmm. it, was that a was that a did that end up being a challenge? I yeah. imagine with these big companies, you know, they're if they come into the e-commerce space, especially at that time, somehow you're going to end up undercutting their other sales channels. Yeah. So so it ended up at least it ended up. Um, changing our business model a bit because a what we did in order to get certain uh, manufacturers and and brands um, we, we did the switch from marketplace to e-commerce. So some for some it was necessary to actually take inventory. So even if we could convince a wholesaler to work with us, sometimes the manufacturer would say no. Wholesalers cannot sell to other resellers. They can only sell to end customers. So we, they could we couldn't get certain brands and certain brands that were actually quite. Uh, high in demand by our customers, so we actually did that switch, and there was a quite a big switch, even to some extent sometimes painful switch on the VC side because e-commerce was not a, such a hot topic compared to marketplace. Um, and the second um, uh, switch that we did or, or, or change um, wasn't as big, but we actually um, did a physical store. We opened a physical store that we still have today. <laughs> it's just one store, um, but we opened a physical store so that in the end we were able to change our pitch towards um, manufacturers so we then approach manufacturers with a pitch saying we're a specialty dealer we have a we have a we have a warehouse we have a, we have a physical store of course we also have, a, also have an online store never mind that the online store does 99% of the revenue we never talked about that part but but we changed our pitch and when we changed our pitch that changed the game uh, because then we also realized what I, what I said before it's not that the manufacturers really didn't want to work with us it's that they needed a good explanation to go back to their existing uh, dealers and say, look, there's nothing I can do about working with Contorian because they just fulfill all the criteria that you fulfill as well. Right. So did you kind of open that physical store almost as a business development prop or did you, did you ever have intention of scaling it in a, in a brick and mortar? No. Not really. Not really. That's creative. Yeah, really cool. And it's still just one store today. Right, right. I want to touch on something that you, I heard you mention a couple times when you mentioned Project A Ventures, the VC. If I understood reading between the lines, you brought on a VC partner really early on in the game? Was it, did you, how far along did you get before you decided to take that, that venture capital money? Because that's a pretty big step. True. Um, we got to like to the point of uh, doing well, fleshing out the business model, kind of how we want to approach the market, um, doing customer um, interviews and, and and researching basically if there's a need and and, and things like that. Um, and yeah, we got the funding basically just at the time of launching our our kind of prototype uh, was like we launched the shop but we didn't really put any marketing on just to test, test the processes that's when we started the 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 fundraising process um, but I think also there um, 
two factors. One, uh, we knew that this, so when I say we, I have two co-founders, <laughs> uh, Freddie and Richard, um, we knew that this business wasn't, was going to be capital intensive. So, you, you know, it was, it's not the typical kind of bootstrapping business that we are starting um, because you do need a certain scale. You do need to invest in customer acquisition um, uh, to, to build your business. Um, and 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 B, the other thing is, I think that um, yeah, the fact that having the network, knowing each other, like you know, with Project A, also helped in just getting the funding pre-revenue. Um, I think that's not always doable to get a VC on board pre-revenue. I think Project A is probably a, a, among a couple of others, like Cherry or whatever, that 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 do invest pre-revenue. But I think a lot of VCs don't don't you don't do that on a on a bigger scale. I mean, you were almost pre-proof of concept yeah, almost, at that point, huh? So that's a that's a pretty impressive to be able to acquire that kind of partner early on in the game. That's really cool. So you you know you you went through this experience. You raised capital. You started to you made your kind of primary pivot from marketplace to e-commerce. Opened the store, grew the customer base. Can you kind of talk about where that has led you to where you are now? I know you had a, a change of ownership process over the past couple of years. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So we. Well, so, I mean, the iteration of our business model just continued, just I think as it's normal for, you know, building building a business. So um, um, that, that led to the fact that we actually also started experimenting with a sales team. Um, uh, that team is now uh, the biggest team in, of Contorion, actually, uh, not by much, but it's the biggest team. Um, it's an inside sales team, so it works, it works on the phone, but we tested it out with, with two people calling, calling out B2B customers after we acquired them and seeing whether that has any effect on, on, on kind of like the development of the cohorts and the CRV and it had a positive effect so that's why uh, we grew the team um, and um, yeah so we iterated on the model you know went 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 deeper into into the B2B space and and also understood our segments uh, further um, uh, and um, yeah by that I think we're able to at least online I would say become the the leading player for for craftsmen for the kind of uh, assortment that we sell um, and um, yeah that kind of drew the attention at, at some point actually um, of of uh, of a family business in in Munich that um, um, that yeah then in the process decided to acquire us in uh, and approached us so we actually didn't we were we were in a phase of okay we we just raised our our series B um, in summer uh, in that summer and uh, then we got approached in kind of 
December. Um, so our funding, obviously, was we still had a lot of runway with with our funding, um, by 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 Hoffman by the family business, um, uh, to start yeah talking about uh, whether whether it makes sense to kind of like join forces, um, and at the beginning we thought yeah uh, no way this is gonna this is gonna work out because. Um, um, yeah, German family businesses usually also don't invest kind of the, the the amount of money that that you know they would have to do knowing our valuation at the time, etc. Um, but yeah, they approached us with with the mindset of hey, they they were serious. I think they they understood kind of um, that also they had a business model that that relied a bit on kind of um, field sales and 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 also in terms of the price transparency, similar things um, that that we were kind of a good addition to. To how they are structured and set up, and uh, and uh, yeah, so the talks continued. Uh, we actually didn't do a structured process where we um, tried to get other buyers in, but we just that's the one that's the one party we talked to. And if it wouldn't have worked out, we just would have continued on our journey to continue building this uh, kind of VC funded. And um, yeah, then um, Hoffman acquired us uh, roughly two years ago, so in late summer 2017. Um, and yeah, since then we've just continued building the business together with them. And 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 luckily, um, I'm gonna knock on wood. Um, uh, all the things that we discussed with Hoffman uh, during the process, um, they've they've kind of um, yeah stayed true to. So the 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 things like letting us work independently here in Berlin um, and and as 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 us as a unit um, and not needing to take kind of like tools and processes from from a corporate parent but but really staying an independent uh, startup unit. Um, um, has stayed that way, and also B uh, Hoffman continue to fund our our growth, um, and so uh, um, yeah, we've been able to 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 keep up the momentum and 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 keep expanding in in our markets. Um, just it was just really a change in ownership and somebody else else who basically funded that growth and and who who brought different things to the table than the VC owner before. Um, uh, uh, namely, more industry knowledge and more logis logistics knowledge, so kind of like more knowledge re related to our market and our operation. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's why that's why I guess also um, we are all still here, like all all you know, all of us, all the three co-founders, also team-wise. Um, um, yeah, we are doing really well retaining the the people that uh, that were here um, at the time we got acquired. Obviously, that's always a big fear, um, also for us and and also for Hoffman. So yeah. Cool. You know, obviously, there's a great benefit of a liquidity event taking place with a with a change of ownership. Can you tell me a little, being you know, coming from a, growing a startup on your own, now you've got a big institutional backer behind you that's obviously providing capital. Mm -hmm. But how does that how did that change the growth trajectory of your business and and the operations of it as well? What what did you find that they were able to bring in? Obviously, aside from cash. Yeah, so um, that was that was a big big discussion between us founders also when we talked about uh, do we want to sell do we want to sell now and do we want to um, do the do this together with with this parent company um, was what what do they bring to the table I mean I think that number one uh, besides cash let's 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 stay at that f first because um, when I talked about the Groupon journey before. Um, we're in a situation with Condor, we're building a VC-funded business, which means there needs to be a liquidity event in the end. So uh, because the VC will, will want to have a return on what they put in um, and liquidity event in case of success is always going to be either IPO or some sort of trade sale. And so um, 
uh, it's not that like there was a third alternative to say, okay, you know, we're just never going to sell to anyone and we're just going to keep doing what we want to do. Um, and so um, on that cash point and also on the alternative of an IPO, I had gone through um, the Group One experience where. Yeah, when also when we started Contrarian, actually at first we thought we're gonna make this we're gonna make this big. Obviously, everybody starts with the, with a dream. Uh, we, we're gonna make this big, and 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 obviously also we the, the aim is to 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 take this IPO, and it's it's a model that can be big enough to to take it IPO. Then we when we talked to Hoffman, actually um, I kind of revisited that kind of why why do I actually why 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 is that like the 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 goal here, and is that actually a a good goal? Um, uh, relative to the experience that I had with Groupon where um, being public also has certain drawbacks where you know you, um, you get much more into a quarterly thinking than a long-term thinking and um, you're under pressure by owners that you cannot choose um, and so they have own interests maybe they also get in conflict with each other and you're just stuck in the middle um, so things like that where just having a, a sole owner a family business owner with like that has a tradition and has a certain stability that even that also puts a certain stability into that you know cash and and the support component that I think is 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 in the end that's also how it worked out for us luckily um, is really important so you know even even if if nothing else would have happened you know other support even just getting this and getting this stability I think also has been a big benefit for us um, uh, but but on top of that um, uh, like the, I think the biggest uh, advantage uh, that we're getting and we're still also in the process of getting um, is logistics know-how um, so our our um, assortment that we're selling is really complex from you can imagine like small bits and drills that like really uh, really small and uh, to handle um, all the way up to large workshop trolleys and 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 you know bulky things that you can only ship with haulier and that are um, difficult to handle um, just the warehouse operation and everything else also the terms with with the couriers and the hauliers and all that stuff is um, is complicated um, and so having that knowledge from Hoffman also having the conditions that they, you know purchasing conditions and negotiating power that they have with with somebody like DHL etc uh, was was really helpful and just you know brought us just a step change in terms of savings also in the direct costs for example um, um, and then also the other big part besides besides logistics was uh, the assortment um, uh, knowledge and the um, relationships that Hoffman has to the suppliers. So we share common suppliers. Um, Hoffman obviously shares a long history of these suppliers and, and has uh, oftentimes has, has, has also good purchasing conditions with, with these suppliers that we can also then rely on. I want to kind of ask the same question, but I want to frame it a little bit differently from the perspective of a founder. Um, a little while back, I had Tim Taba, who's also a Veha alum, and they uh, they IPO'd Credit Shelf, mm -hmm. and he was I was asking him what his how his life has changed. He said my role is completely different now. I'm constantly at shareholder meetings. There's increased levels of transparency. Of course, you're dealing with quarterly earnings reports. Mm -hmm. Very different from a. Although they try to, exactly, you know, they try to maintain the culture of a startup, but on the day-to-day -day operations specifically of the CEO founder, it becomes very, very different. Mm -hmm. How has your role changed, what you and your, I guess, co-founders from really being the, the end decision ends with us, mm -hmm. you know, maybe board members in mm -hmm. some cases and investors, to now working within a much larger hierarchy? Do you mm -hmm. feel like you have the... Where do you maintain the autonomy and where do some things start to change? Yeah, good question. 
Um, so luckily, upwards, not much has changed. So um, um, the cadence of like having board meetings um, before we had them VC with our VC, now we have them with with our like parent company. The cadence hasn't changed, and also kind of like the the the, the information that we provide and things that we discussed by and large haven't changed so that luckily um, I, we don't as founders have a lot more duties to report things upwards and, and keep people in the loop so that's really really helpful so we can actually you know be involved in developing the company and um, yeah but in, in a larger organization um, but not just in a larger organization I, th I don't know I'm not sure if it has to do with larger organization or also with the just culturally uh, work and how it's carried out and hierarchy changing over time. Um, at least I feel uh, that, that, that the last five years, maybe it's just my kind of like enlightenment or I finally get it or maybe I'm just getting it wrong. I don't know. But, but I think that, yeah, um, decision, decision power is much more distributed now, uh, not just because we're bigger and, 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 and it's not just distributed uh, to a different hierarchy level from the founders to kind of like the second level, um, but we are actually trying wherever we can to push decision making and responsibility down on the lowest level really and you're Actually, it, it means that the role of, of you as, as a founder, but also even of, of the heads of departments that we have, is also changing to much more of kind of like a facilitator more than actually, you know, you sit there and you like take all the decisions and you just, you know, monopolize power in some weird way. Um, I think that just, I mean, it, it doesn't work that way here um, anymore. It's not like that it was like that <laughs> at the beginning, but I feel that it's definitely been a development over time that actually, yes, decisions are being taken not by us, uh, but uh, yeah, by the group. I want, I want to ask you a little piece about that. You've had a really interesting career trajectory, almost a frenetic going from startup to corporate yeah. to startup to corporate. Yeah. It's like, uh, and all the changes that go along. Right. It's not a bad cycle to be in, in your case, I think. Yeah. But, uh, um, you know, I'm curious in terms of, especially for founders that are in the process of team building, mm -hmm. that is such a... a a big challenge. It can make or break a startup. And, and I, I pose this question to Tim post-IPO as well on a similar topic. How do you find, as someone that had to recruit and build a team as a startup and now recruit and bring on employees as part of a different organization, do you find you're still able to attract the same types of personas um, into the corporate, more stable environment versus the one that might be higher risk reward of an option, option early stage employee? What's the difference? How does it change? So um, I think it def definitely changes over time. I've seen a much much stronger contrast at, at Groupon actually from like early days found, founding days to then being public and you know being a much bigger company than Contorian is right now um, uh, yeah so the, the, the profiles do change quite a bit uh, the, the things that people are motivated by are changing and, and I mean not just like monetarily or upside wise but also kind of the, the, the type of work they like to carry out and, and you know the things they enjoy so um, 
I think in in in, in early days, uh, it's rather the employees who enjoy like you know um, making big chaos to kind of small chaos. That's like you know that's kind of like early days. And then later on, um, you need people who optimize like the 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 the, the remainders, like they who take it from like ninety five to hundred percent, and to and that maybe is just as much effort those five percent obviously than getting it to the, the getting the first eighty. But the people who like to get the first eighty, they don't enjoy also you know optimizing those last five and uh, but on a bigger scale um, um, that's obviously you know necessary at some point to to improve the business further um, and also just generally even even just being more cautious with you know with bigger scale um, just taking you know whatever if we if we put something live and or whatever like the features that we develop the downtime that is acceptable like at a bigger scale everything is just you know hurts much more if you do a mistake um, and so yeah the, the, you know the, yeah definitely the Nature changes, and also the nature of, of of the people that apply to the company change uh, changes. Um, not like I said, I have I've seen a much bigger change at Groupon than I have at Contourant, and and still try. Although like knowing that you you do need different types um, later on, uh, I do try to look um, that that there there's there's people who come on board that do have a big like drive in themselves to kind of like make things better you know and 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 as long as as that's given as long as you you, you don't get too much of a feeling that people are just here to you know just to stay from you know a certain hour to another hour and then receive a paycheck at the end of the month but that they actually come with a certain like you know drive whether it's the drive to get it from 95 to 100 or from 1 to 80 that doesn't doesn't matter that much it's just you know you need just the energy and the kind of also the self you know motivation Right. It, it's interesting that, you know, those are different personas, right? Yeah. And, you know, I talk about this a lot, that there, there's founders and optimizers, you know, mm-hmm. there's build, like builders and managers, you know, and they're very distinctively different personas, generally speaking. You have worn both hats mm-hmm. and you kind of forcibly or fortunately evolved from one into the other. Now that you've been straddling both sides, which one are you? Are you a builder or are you an optimizer? I, 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 I mean, probably Hoffman shouldn't listen to this, but I think I'm, I'm more of a builder than I am an optimizer. Yeah. So uh, obviously, like the good thing about the, the role change, I think, is that the day-to-day, um, um, not sure it's actually true, but I think the day-to-day, you know, on, on, on that level, on the founder level, um, that it it changes yes but you're not impacted as much as if it was really you know um a job level day to day of whatever um a certain role that you're carrying out uh, where at the beginning like i said it's big chaos and you make it to small chaos and then uh, later on it's something completely different but but um yeah um, as a founder when you're more on the on the facilitating role um um, then, then you're not as much impacted. What kind of problem you optimize? But yes, I, you still are, and it still changes. And and uh, yeah, I think I'm more of a builder than. A, yeah, I, I, I couldn't imagine being on the other side. As yeah. soon as I feel like a manager, it's time for me to try something different. But um, I want to just dig into the weeds one more time between these two contrasts uh-huh. because I think they're it's such a unique position to be in, especially especially twice. Yeah. So, um, just to get to dig a little deeper on the details of it. You know, maybe you could talk a little bit about like how your kind of KPIs and your measurements of success change from being a, a growth stage startup to then having that acquisition where 
you know, you can kind of assume there's a little more of a stabilization point to a certain degree there. Do you measure differently than you used to, or do you still kind of have those same, same well, I mean, KPIs? The big KPIs are actually still the same, um, but, I mean, A, we measure more, obviously. Um, we measure more um, in our management team. So before, obviously, you're just, you know, you look at the top line and you look at your margin and you look at your marketing costs and you're basically kind of almost done. Um, and that that's enough also to guide you for quite a while. Um, but um, when you're when you're bigger, obviously you you start looking deeper down until the bottom line. That's that's one thing. But also um, just with the organization growing, um, it gets more complex because uh, that that the organization grows, teams grow, and even within the teams, within marketing, within you know category management, whatever, um, there's roles that are more specialized. And so, whereas before in marketing, I could look at my marketing cost ratio and basically just talk to the whatever head of marketing. Now, um, there's the different, you know, specialization on the different channel or in the categories, the different categories. And so, actually, you need to drill down deeper um, in order to really understand what's driving it or also to understand where can I get growth from next year, etc. So it does get more complex. And also, yeah, like th just thinking about it now where we talk about it, um, that's also where you get to the point of like going from building to more, okay, you need to also be concerned with the details a bit more and have the, you know, kind of the persistence, not in terms of persistence to build, but persistence to like go deeper and deeper and deeper into the detail to understand the detail. And that's also where you need more numbers. So I think that's, um, yeah, we were looking at more numbers. want to get into the the secret sauce a little bit um, I think a big part of our audience is young people that are passionate about entrepreneurship or thinking about starting businesses themselves you've been on two pretty meteoric rise successes um, maybe you have some tips for aspiring or early stage entrepreneurs some lessons that you've learned that you might be willing to share um, so I mean one thing it's a very difficult one for me to to say, so that no nobody in the in the past process kind of uh, 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 gets their toes stepped on. But um, uh, so let's say one treat uh, treat customers right, treat employees right, um, um, and so I've seen. So let's let's try abstract. I've seen cases also um, within companies that I've seen closely where customers, um, you know, in order to get 
certain revenue, let's say, for a certain quarter, um, because that's what you needed to deliver or to make something look nice because, you know, some somebody else is looking at your numbers, um, uh, were squeezed, um, you know, were refused to give, give you know, some sort of like, you know, money back uh, in a gray zone, whatever. And um, I've seen it come back at you all the time. Um, you, you, I don't think you can do this when you really want to build a sustainable business uh, because the customer, like the customer does remember this kind of stuff and and eventually will not come back so i think that most businesses unless you kind of have like businesses you know in the funeral space where you just do this service once and you're gone but but uh, most businesses rely on you know coming back you know customers coming back and them some sort of customer lifetime value so so i think you should in case of doubt um never cut corners on the customer but but always do it do it right for the customer and and that also can mean you know that in some early cases when you do mistakes you pay on top but you need to pay on top because otherwise it's going to get more expensive um and uh, and yeah i mean i think it's very similar on the on the on the on the employee side um, I think especially for probably also especially for young founders but also generally I see that um, founders obviously founders care a lot about their business um, think a lot about their business um, that can a lead to the fact that you think you know more you know better maybe you also when you're a founder or when you even founded multiple times um, and you've always been kind of like at the at the top um, you know you should like the feedback doesn't come to you maybe anymore you're probably doing things wrong all the time um, but people don't don't tell you or they tell you less than they should and so um, it's really risky um, either just as a founder generally or as somebody who's founded several times to think that you know things you know things better you know it all and um, I think that that's generally not going to motivate anyone obviously in the long term if and it's 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 bad for the culture that you build because you're going to monopolize decisions um and uh, and you're not going to hand out responsibility and uh, while that works at the beginning because it's a small organization and you know you can decide a lot of things and you can also carry the responsibility and kind of steer everyone at some point you're not going to be able to steer everyone but if everyone's used to being steered and being told what to do um then they're not going to be able to like walk independently or even just grow independently or grow the business independently so i think it's it, it you don't feel the effect early on but i think it's very important early on um that you you build it the right way and 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 do you know hand out responsibility and and distribute uh, uh, that um to to as many people as possible yeah that it's great wisdom and uh you know i i was telling you offline that i just got back from techstar as we were going through the selection process it's a mentor driven program the entire program is based on bringing in brilliant mentors to advise entrepreneurs that are often myopically focused on their end result. And like you said, when you're, you've been on the top all the time, maybe you're not listening. Did you have mentors? You know, you went straight from university into, into being a multiple time founder. Did you have people that inspired you, gave you feedback and kind of gave you some of that wisdom along the way, or was it trial and error? Mm -hmm. I'm, I think I was more the trial and error person. Um, plus, um, thinking about it, actually, um, uh, I tend to have fairly close relationships with, well, either my co-founder, so, so actually in both cases, um, uh, Groupon and also here at Contorian, we are super open with each other in uh, with with us as co-founders so we give each other feedback all the time and and um, and also at uh, groupon we did that at groupon i'm also still good friends um 
with with a lot of people from there, also co-founder, and uh, and we also exchange and and also challenge uh, ourselves uh, uh, quite quite regularly. Um, but also, I've always been fairly close with um, just the the people that I'm working with or that are working with me or for me although i really hate saying for me but work with me and um so they've they've also quite quite a few actually developed into uh, into friends over over time um so that i think i i was a little bit less in the position that people feel they can't tell me if something's wrong so um i think i've also gotten quite a bit of feedback um just over time from the people that i've been working with Well, you know, you, you've brought a Groupon a few times, and when I think of Groupon, I think of an era past almost. Mm -hmm. um, you've now been in the the tech world for about a decade, mm -hmm. um, so this is kind of a two-part question. One is, do you still stay involved somehow in startups? Um, do you participate in the startup ecosystem in any way? And If so, how have you seen it change over these very formative years of growth in Germany? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so yeah, I mean, I do now um, invest a little bit also as a business angel. Um, um, I think, but 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 that's 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 a more more recent kind of thing. Um, um, I, so first of all, yes, I've seen a change over time. I mean, I, like I, like I said in the beginning, when we started Groupon um, or City Deal, we started it in multiple countries at the same time. You know, so you basically um, um, internationalized before even um, proving the path to kind of even getting to somewhere large, somewhere profitable in your home market, and you already take it to other markets. I think that is a pattern that I've seen changing quite a bit, um, so that, uh, um, uh, you know, I think businesses now um, and, and VCs also look at that more, that you kind of prove something um, uh, before you kind of throw a lot of money in it and, and multiply it. Um, Then there's also the other changes in the in the um, in the industries that are also coming coming up like e-commerce, marketplace, uh, SaaS, fintech, etc. Um, um, yeah, so so those and I think that yeah, generally the 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 spaces that you're operating in they get smaller or more specialized, right? So like even when we are looking at Contorian, we were really surprised that there's such a big market still not tapped. Uh, and I think on the B2C side, a lot of this ma the markets that size have been long tapped. So you, if you want to start something, you need to look much, much harder and deeper to find find the niche or find the right thing to uh, to where, where to kind of enter. So that's one. And the other thing that, that I see now is that um, businesses that, um, that started you know 10 years ago 15 years ago even even more recent to some extent they get overtaken again by new competition coming in and so so i like um, yeah um, see that for for different kind of business that also there you can't really rely on the fact that you started the company 10 years ago um, to not get out innovated in your market right you know it's interesting what you said is how you've got to really start digging deeper now you know and you you found an opportunity in, in the world that was untapped and were able to kind of fill a niche. Um, nowadays, having to go that much deeper, maybe that maybe the approach that you took is more challenging than it used to be. Definitely. Having some domain or sector expertise to really understand the mechanics of how the business operates mm -hmm. is the only thing that may really allow you to get mm -hmm. that deep, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Uh, I mean, I could 
talk about this all day. I think it's really interesting. But with uh, all of the guests on these episodes, I try to ask a couple questions that uh, provides a little insight into the individual. Most people hate it, so apologies in advance. But uh, do learn a lot from people in the process. So first question is, uh, if so, if you're reading anything right now, what book is on your bedside table? Uh, my, the book on bedside table is uh, Shoe Dog. I think it's not a particularly new book uh, from uh, the founder of Nike. Uh-huh. Cool. Well, have you found any insights out of? Uh, well, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm like, I think one third through, but uh, hustling and 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 not giving up and being persistent, right? I, I don't know if you've read it, but like uh, the stuff, he, the yeah, stuff, yeah. He, stuff he did, like really early on, uh, studies the flight to Japan and pitched like some sort of stuff to um, back then uh, the Onitsuka Tiger, I think it was in in, in Japan, or like I think it's Essex now, or whatever. But um, yeah, uh, and and just how 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 that like how long it all took, and and uh, but how committed he was I think uh, yeah was was great to learn so far and there's probably more insights to come and uh, being that you're in the music capital of Germany or mm -hmm. certainly certainly one of them I'm gonna ask you to exclude any children's music that might be on your playlist because yeah, <laughs> I imagine there's some of that too but uh, what are you listening to right now um, I'm actually we're actually going to, to a concert in uh, in a couple of weeks um, by somebody I think that is not that well known yet. His name is Mark Rebier. He's uh, he basically is um, how do you call that? He, he calls himself the Loop Daddy. So he basically um, produces all the music himself. You know, he's uh, he's got these loop stations where he can uh, do uh, drum loops and but also plays the uh, um, plays the piano or keyboard and and so he does uh, and, and and so he produces and it's all all improvised. Um, he doesn't have an album. I think he's thinking about doing an album, but um, it's all improvised. Um, so he produces everything on the spot. He does it once a week. He has a you know he goes live. I think on Sunday. Day, uh, for a couple of hours and and, and, and and the audience can actually submit topics uh, that he then does music about he's a bit crazy uh, so uh, yeah it, uh, don't judge me uh, if, you, if you happen to look at it and think what the fuck um, but uh, um, yeah he I think it's it's, it's it's a great talent that he has to, to do this all on the spot and uh, and uh, yeah so. so amazing yeah I've been listening to a woman named Tosh Sultana uh -huh. she also does this uh -huh. the yeah. loop stuff yeah. and Amazing when someone's playing all those different instruments and yeah. singing, singing layers on top of it. Yeah. Very cool. Toby Tretch, thank you so much for inviting me to your office, taking the time out of your busy day. It was a, a pleasure to have this conversation and look forward to sharing your story with uh, your alma mater and, uh, and hopefully more people. So. Thanks. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Uh, great, great podcast or great questions. I really enjoyed the, enjoyed the conversation. Didn't, didn't feel very long at all. Awesome. Thanks. 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 Well, folks, that was Toby Chich, founder and managing director of Contorion. If you're interested in learning more about Toby's work, check out Contorion's website at contorion.de. Coming soon in episode 12, we'll speak with another VHAU alum, Janis Fischer. His journey from VHAU to small business owner to sole founder and CEO of a rapidly growing software as a service company, Zen Homes, aka Fermitit.de, is absolutely riveting to say the least. Bis nächstes Mal.